AI with Sally, a podcast that takes a closer look at some of the most interesting technology stories on artificial intelligence and machine learning. We'll hear about the latest in hardware and software that has a big impact on the world of AI. I'm your host, Sally Ward-Foxton. In this episode, we'll be talking about computer vision. We'll hear Steve Tig, CEO of Perceive, talk about a way of compressing activations that he's come up with that can reduce the size of memory needed for AI inference. We'll also have a sneak peek of a new neuromorphic-inspired vision chip from Grey Matter Labs. But first, is computer vision about to reinvent itself again? I had the pleasure of interviewing Professor Riyad Benesman, Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Pittsburgh and an adjunct professor at the CMU Robotics Institute. He's also one of the founding fathers of neuromorphic vision as we know it today, that is, event-based vision. The idea of event-based vision is based on the way biological vision systems work, detecting changes in the scene dynamics rather than analysing the entire scene continuously, like mainstream AI-based computer vision systems do. Benesman doesn't want to copy the brain or the retina exactly. There's no need to make an exact faithful copy of the neuron in silicon, he said. Part of the problem, of course, is that we don't fully understand all the signals between neurons today. And if we don't understand how the brain works, how can we copy it? Ben Osman also argues that there's no point copying the brain if we don't have a biological computing substrate to run it on. Rather, what we do needs to adapt to the qualities of silicon. When event-based vision was a new idea, the pioneering work in this field was so new and different that initial papers were rejected by the leading computer vision journal at the time, without even being reviewed. It just wasn't believed that computer vision could work without full-frame images. But today, there are several commercial event-based vision sensors available from companies including Prophecy, for example. But Ben Osman feels there's definitely room for improvement on the processing side. The development of general-purpose neuromorphic processors is indeed lagging behind event-based cameras. But the right combination of sensor and processor would be an unbeatable combination, he said. If you want to read the full article, I'll put a link on the podcast page at eetimes.com. Professor Ben Osman will also be giving the keynote speech at the Embedded Vision Summit in Santa Clara, California on May 17th. It's called Event-Based Neuromorphic Perception and Computation, the Future of Sensing and AI. So if you're interested in exploring neuromorphic vision, I would encourage you to check that out. I also spoke this month with Grey Matter Labs, a startup in the neuromorphic vision space. The company has effectively borrowed some concepts from event-based vision. They don't use event-based sensors, the chip processes full-frame images, but instead the concept of looking for events is applied at the processing stage. They refer to it more like a type of sparsity. By focusing on regions of videos where something's happening, they can make the data sparser and therefore you can process it more efficiently, if you have the right kind of chip, that is. Grey Matter have, of course, built a chip exactly for that. What kind of applications need this functionality? Kind of event-based, but not event-based. Grey Matter is applying their technology to applications where the final product will be for human consumption. Their chip is for media processing applications, where you're processing high quality video and perhaps somehow manipulating the video using AI as part of the process. So the output is also high quality video, not just metadata or information used to make a decision. Here's Grey Matter CEO Ingolf Held to explain a bit more. It is really moving on to a new application case of AI. Uh, Today, most of the world cares about understanding audio and 
and video, yeah? And you get metadata out of it, so nobody really cares what happened to the original feed. Not really, yeah? Okay. Uh, you can do some overlay, but it doesn't really matter. So so all the architectures basically cramp as many Macs into their, into their architecture as little precision as possible uh, to, to basically get to the metadata. And, but that only brings you so far, gives you metadata, yeah? Boxes, uh, action signals, all that. We want to transform the audio and video experience for the consumer at home and in the workplace. Yeah, and in order to transform it, you need a different architecture. The architecture is is really has 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 much different, uh, uh, you know, uh, requirements to satisfy in terms of latency, uh, in terms of quality. Uh, you know, the, the the metrics are very different, and and that indeed gives us a singular position. One unusual aspect of Grey Matter's chip is that it uses 16-bit floating-point precision. Pretty unusual for an edge chip where normally we're trying to reduce precision as much as possible. Here's Grey Matter VP of Business Development, Mahesh Makajani. One of the key aspects uh, as a neomorphic provider as well is that all our Mac operations are done in 16-bit floating-point. And this is kind of unique compared to pretty much any other edge architecture out there. And we can afford, you know, so a lot of people, of course, take a trade-off, as you have seen, uh, for power and efficiency by going to 8-bit int, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that essentially gives you a lot of uh, good benefits. Now, with sparsity and event-based processing, we had to do 16-bit floating point just because, you know, we keep track of what's happened in the past. But, you know, we essentially come out ahead because there's so much sparsity to be gained um, that the 16-bit floating point is not an overhead for us. And in fact, it helps us quite a bit in some key use cases in terms of um, you know, real-time processing. These are some of the concepts that Grey Matter are using in their chip, Grey VIP. I'm told that engineering samples are already up and running in the lab. I'll have more on Grey Matter's chip in a future EE Times article, so stay tuned. Today's AI models have billions or trillions of parameters, that is, inputs and weights, and so we need huge memory for the activations. This, of course, has a huge effect on chip design, as activation memory frequently dominates the floor plan. We can try and reduce the memory we need using concepts like quantization, sparsity, weight sharing, but they can only go so far, especially while models are enormous and continuing to grow. If only there was a way to compress activations. Well. Steve Tig, CEO of Perceive, has come up with a way. Okay, I'm very, very happy to welcome Steve Tig uh, to the show today. Steve is founder and CEO of Perceive. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Sally. Glad to be here. Uh, so, Steve, your talk at the Embedded Vision Summit next month uh, is going to be covering activation compression. Um, maybe you could start us off with, you know, why do we need to compress activations? And then maybe we can talk a bit more about how to do it. Uh, sure. So uh, lots of people talk about compressing weights and people even talk a little bit about compressing activations, you know, running it with 8-bit activations instead of larger. But interestingly, contemporary networks often have a much larger activation footprint then they have a weight footprint in memory. So uh, for all of the effort on quantization and sparsity and whatever that people are doing on weights, and that's great. Uh, in some ways, the bigger problem has been left ignored, which is that the activations are dominating the memory footprint of networks, which occupies both space and power, because and time for that matter, but it, as you have to move the activations around. So, so as, as I looked at this question, I realized first, 
activation compression would be a good thing if you could do it. Second, applying the somewhat trivial techniques that people are using for waste for activations is better than nothing, but doesn't get you very far. So yeah, you should use lower precision if you can get away with lower precision. Sparsity for activations in practice hasn't gone very well because the sparsity is so uh, random, is so unpredictable that it's hard to exploit that lack of structure constructively. But further, the kinds of compression people do for waste, where you get 2x or 4x, well, how are you going to get the 20x or 50x that might be necessary to get rid of the gigabytes that are often necessary for, for activations? And so that, that motivated us to think of more creative, more out-of-the-box ways of approaching this. And it turns out that order-of-magnitude sorts of compression are possible. So that's what the talk's about. Fantastic. Okay, so... It's a great idea to compress compress activations because activations can be much bigger than weights. Uh, is that right? Yes. Okay. And further, there's low-hanging fruit. Basically, okay. you know, one of the examples I'll give in the talk are if you're going to do uh, image processing for the sake of concreteness, um, uh, super resolution or noise reduction in an image or something like that, uh, you don't really have to look at the pixels on the total other end of the picture to noise reduce parts of this end of the picture. Uh, so, so you don't really have to process the whole image flat. If you did, it's going to take a boatload of activation memory. But if you have enough computation to get the work done quickly enough, you could, in fact, move through the image in pieces and do them sequentially, a semi-obvious thing to do. Um, and, and that would increase your computation uh, uh, time, perhaps, because you're not doing everything in parallel, but you've now decreased your activation footprint. So one can generalize that idea and say, okay, one of the coolest things about neural networks is that at compile time, at the time you're handed the neural network, you are perfectly informed about all of the computational dependencies. Everybody draws neural networks with you know, bubbles for neurons and arrows for data moving. Well, those arrows are telling you whether your computation depends on my data or it doesn't. If it does, you've got to wait for me to finish before you get started. If it doesn't, we can proceed in parallel. Well, in that I'm fully informed, it, it's not required that you proceed immediately after me. It's just required you proceed after me at all. So I have incredible flexibility, just incredible flexibility to move around the computations in space where they go on a physical parallel device. And in time, because as long as the dependencies happen in order, uh, I'm good to go and I, and I can still get the right answer. Well, that flexibility in space and time, in space time, the, to rearrange chunks of computation is huge. And I can pack the computation in space and time to uh, trade off uh, throughput against activation memory in a, in, in a very flexible way. How much uh, can, we, can we expect to uh, affect the memory footprint of the activations using the techniques that you've just described by making sub-problems and reordering them and that kind of thing? It's almost unbounded. So, so to take a, a trivial example for intuition, let's imagine that we're doing noise reduction in an image and the image has you know, eight megapixels. Well, if I divide it into 100,000 pixel pieces, I picked that so I can do the math in my head, I've just done one eightieth one 80th of the work, so I've just compressed my activation footprint by approximately 80-fold. Now, I, I, I might have slowed down the computation, but today's hardware is really fast, 
and I have a whole one thirtieth of a second if I'm running at 30 frames a second to get the job done. So, so, so uh, but that shows that even 80x compression uh, is readily available to me. Fantastic. Um, there's another idea I know you're going to talk about, which is more like like explicitly compressing uh, yes. compressing the activations. Tell us about how that works. Well, here again, we we live in an interesting world where uh, computation is almost free and memory isn't almost free. Memory is occupying most of our chips. It's occupying almost all of the energy. If you have to take the the uh, memory off chip, in our case, we do everything on chip. But even so, um, so 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 let's use the fact that we have these ridiculously fast transistors and a lot of them to save memory, which is the precious resource. So the the reasonable thing to do is when you have more activation memory than you want, compress it, store the compressed version of it on the shelf, and then decompress it as, as needed. And you can almost always do not just lossy compression, but brutally lossy compression, because what did you really need about that original data for the downstream computation to consume? It needed something uh, or some things, but not everything. <laughs> so, so what I'm suggesting is we can make simple gadgets that I'm calling XNet. It looks like an X because you you have a compressor that looks like a the top half of an hourglass and a decompressor that looks like the bottom half of an hourglass, so to speak. So, so, so you 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 squeeze the data through a narrow bottleneck and then expand it as needed. You can take the compressor part of this and put it when the large body of activation data is constructed and you can have the decompressor at where the consumer is going to be and in between you've now compressed your footprint and here too our practical experience is you can get incredible amounts of compression and give up nothing in accuracy uh, that the actual amount of data in most practical networks that you need it to keep is really quite small so here again, we're talking about an order of magnitude or two that might be possible, as opposed to the two or four X you might get from trivial things like loading precision. Steve, can I combine the idea of explicitly compressing it with the idea of reordering it in space time to get multiples of these techniques? Absolutely, you can and should, and 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 frankly, combining that with lower lowering precision too, when you can get away with that, is just, sure. so all of these things are multiplicative. Why not make use of that? Sure. I think the one other comment I, that, that, that I'll make about the talk is um, one of the surprising things about computation that most people who work on neural networks haven't really internalized is something that in information theory is called the data processing inequality. And without getting overly technical and mathematical in this discussion, although I'll talk about it in the talk, what that basically says is computation itself can't add information. So, so, so if you take a body of data and pass it through some computation, either the computation is invertible, in which case you can reconstruct the input and you've preserved information, or it isn't, in which case you've lost information that is intrinsically not reconstructable. But there's no new source of information. So what that says is you can't possibly need more activation than you had input into the network. Uh, often you need much, much, much less than that, but but that's an upper bound. And so th th this suggests that the only reason we have giant activations is because it can be very convenient to represent things in a in, in a way that's convenient for downstream stream computation. But it is not inherent that large activations are necessary. In fact, the contrary is provable, that you never need large activations in principle. So, so that is a strong motivation to introduce technologies to exploit that opportunity. 
So this is like, this is how you're justifying saying we can compress it. It should, yes. it should be feasible. It should be doable, right? Yes. It, you know, it, it, it's it, um, it's a funny thing about the world of neural networks, especially these days, is they get the neural networks are getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. Uh, and and uh, people have their hands on their hips and say, well, I'm not even compressing my network. I can run it flat. And I think you should be embarrassed when you say stuff like that. <laughs> it, 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 the, the fact is our networks could be a million times, and I'm not exaggerating in saying a million, could be a million times smaller than they are if we did the compression properly. Uh, and no one can do that yet. We, you know, my, my team, we're seeing factors of 100. So so we're off to the races. But but we're embarrassed that we're leaving the other 10,000 X on the table. But, but, but everybody should be recognizing that our networks are much bigger than computation says they, they need to be. I think I know some transformer guys who'd be happy to reduce it by 100x or 1,000x, right? Because it's getting out of control. It totally is. Totally is. Um, Steve, I know uh, a lot of what you do over at Perceive. You're the founder and CEO of Perceive. I know a lot mm -hmm. of what you do is about taking these concepts from information theory. They're very interesting and applying it to neural networks and neural network maths. Um, you also have your own hardware accelerator called Ergo. Mm -hmm. um, which is specifically designed for the special type of mass you use. Um, do you want to give us a clue about, uh, tell us a bit about what you what you do at Perceive and what you can do? Uh, sure. So uh, basically, we're trying to rethink how to do machine learning at the edge. So, so using information theory, exactly as you say, to uh, apply mathematical principles to how we can make the, a network that does the same thing as a naively computed neural network in a much smaller space with much less power and so on. We have hardware and software that enable us to get uh, such extreme levels of compression that we have chips that don't use any external memory, a tiny chip that's in a seven by seven millimeter package that can run data center class networks. So we're running networks with 25, 50, 100 million parameters, multiple networks at once, combination of imaging and audio, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we can do that stuff by uh, taking a mathematically principled approach to how it is to represent the computation that happens inside neural networks and to make them a lot smaller without compromising on accuracy. Yeah. I mean, you do some clever stuff with the hardware too. It's not just about the maths, yeah. right? <laughs> it's true. Well, basically we've discovered a different way to represent the computation that neural networks do. And, and, and so we have software that translates a network into that representation, and we have hardware that executes that representation of neural networks. Notably, pretty much everybody else's hardware for uh, doing neural networks is a large array of multiply accumulators. We don't have a large array of multiply accumulators. In fact, we don't even have, we don't have a small array of multiply accumulators on the chip. We're doing something that means the same, but doesn't have to do quite so much linear algebra. Amazing. We're talking about milliwatts level of energy as well, aren't we? That's correct. So, so, so we're able to run large networks like you know ResNet 50 and YOLO v5 and things like that in tens of milliwatts uh, at, at speed. So, so, so running with batch size one, you know, without any uh, such trickery, so, so, so to speak, we're able to to reproduce what the data center network can do in a tiny chip running in tens of milliwatts. What kind of applications are you looking at? Consumer electronics, isn't it? Things like, things like that. So our initial foray into the market has been with consumer electronics. Uh, one of the, the advantages clearly of being both very small and being very low power is that we're a natural fit for consumer electronics, which is frequently battery powered. And, and it's a way of 
eliminating the compromise of not having access to a data center due to your computations while still being in a battery powered device. But we're gradually expanding into everything from uh, computers, you know, uh, laptops and the like, uh, and, and looking at the other obvious markets you might imagine, both enterprise and, uh, and consumer. Yeah. Okay, so Steve, if people want to find out more about the activation compression ideas that we've been talking about, um, they should come along and hear you speak at the Embedded Vision Summit on May 17th and 18th in Santa Clara. I certainly hope they do. Uh, I, I will do my best to make the talk both comprehensible and entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I understand Perceive uh, is also sponsoring the Women in Vision reception. I'll be attending that, so hopefully see you there. Uh, I certainly hope so. We're very proud of that. Actually, the last uh, pre-pandemic uh, Embedded Vision Conference, we also sp sponsored Women in Vision, and it was a wonderful event. Uh, uh, I think all but one or two of all the women who attended the conference attended our uh, 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 social event, and it was wonderful to see women from their 20s to their 60s and 70s uh, hobnobbing and, and mentorship, partnership, collaboration. It was it was a great thing, and, and, and uh, we're very excited to do it again this year. Thank you very much, Steve Tig, for the fascinating conversation, as always. If you want to catch Steve's presentation at the Embedded Vision Summit, it's May 17th at 12 noon. If you'd like to attend the Women in Vision reception, I'll put a link to register on the podcast website at eetimes.com. I'll also be moderating a panel discussion at the same show. We'll be debating, are neuromorphic vision technologies ready for commercial use? Among the panelists are both Riyad Benesman and Steve Tig, whose voice you just heard. And we'll be talking about whether these technologies are ready to move out of the lab and into products or what might be holding them back. That panel is Wednesday, 18th of May at 2.05. That brings us to the end of the episode. Please tune in again next time to hear more news and views on AI, machine learning, and the technologies that enable them. If you're listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com, Links to articles on topics we've discussed are shown on your left. AI with Sally is brought to you by Aspencore Media. The host is Sally Ward-Foxton and the producer is James Ede. Thank you for listening.